Hi there, for um, there's a there was a as I was reading and, and studying this week, and this is something that that came to me when I was studying Romans too was what are the the most important words in the in the Christian lexicon to people? Uh, what are the what are the most important words in the Christian vocabulary? Does anybody have one or two they like to throw out? We don't do response very often, so I'm going to be quiet and shy. Behold. Behold? Behold's a good one. Therefore. Therefore. <laughs> See, Carla's cheating, because I asked to make sure therefore was in hers. Others. Grace. Uh, love. Mercy. Peace. Peace is such a, especially in the, in the, the way it expands in the original languages, is when I hear peace in English, particularly before I... I really dedicated my life to sort of this path of peace that we're called to in Christianity. It sounds like not fighting with your brother and sister, which is a little bit too moralistic for me. It just says a lot about me. Um, so we'll just move on from that. Um, if my mom were here, she'd be like, mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the, as I was reading this week, there was an argument for the word therefore as, as our most important therefore makes this hint. So most of Paul's letters, if you're familiar with his logic, they move through sort of these openings that are long, which are, are making plain what he wants people to know about their relationship to God and to each other. But he's trying to express to them the deep mysteries of the faith. He's trying to express to them how they've come into this life as Christians. So in Romans, I mean, that's basically one uh, chapter 1 through chapter 8, and then 9 through 11 is a little bit different. And then he gives this doxology at the end of 11 about who knows the ways of God, his riches and mercies. And then what he says in 12 is, therefore I urge you as brothers and sisters. And that's sort of the way that Paul's logic tends to work, is that he sort of builds a sort of dogmatic sketch at the beginning of his letters. And then at the ends of his letters, he shifts to what that means for you as you live your life in practical reality in the world in many ways. And so that's what's sort of happening here. As we did Ephesians 1 through 3, the last couple of weeks, we're shifting to this therefore, in light of knowing what God has done for me. And so in chapter 1, it was in light of all the outpouring of the blessings of what God has done, where he's raised us and sat us with Christ at the right hand. In chapter 2, it was like, but you were dead in your ways, and you were brought back to life. You were dead, and you were brought back to life. In chapter 3, that looked like, the idea of that this is, and well, in the chapter two, you have this, that he's broken down this dividing wall and made two people into one, which is a harder message for us to grasp sometimes. But what God is doing for the church is fashioning this one new humanity is what Paul is telling them at the end of chapter two. And then in chapter three, he goes into um, laying that out a little bit more first and what it means for him. What does this mean for my life? How has my life been caught up in what God is uh, doing in glory. And then chapter three ends with the call to what that means for the Christians a little bit, or he explains a little bit more of his blessing ideas that he, he sort of moves into this idea that we all derive from the father of heaven and that, and that through Christ we're being rooted and grounded in love, another act of God. So chapter four begins with this, therefore, therefore it says, um, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, in the back of your bulletin is, is the King James, which is not something I pull out all that 
often, partially because I didn't grow up with it. I just have very little familiarity with it, but I love the way it has it. And I didn't grab a bulletin. Um, Carla or Brian, cover all yours. But this passage in the King James, I think, is, is capture something. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye were called, with lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he ends with this unity creed. There is one body, one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That's the way it reads in the, in the King James. But I like that he says walk. What is the goal of this therefore is I call you to walk in this path. Now if you remember back to chapter 2, when he talked about us being dead in our sins, he said that you walked in that way. You had this living death that you walked in. You walked as these dead ones among the earth, choosing poorly because what else did you? He says, and this is interesting as we talk about the context, that you even had no gods, which to the ancient person would have been like, we had lots of gods before we became Christians. You gave us one god. Um, and now everybody accuses us of having no gods because our god doesn't have temple shrines or paraphernalia we can buy to sort of show that we're a member of that one god. But he says you walked in this way. And so what Paul is saying now is that you walked in that way. You walked as those captured in a living death. You walked as ones who weren't alive. But considering what I've told you up till now, what I've laid out before you, is now your calling is to walk in a different way. Now, for the ancient Jewish imagination, walking is like living your moral life, living your life in the world. Walking isn't just like walk, <laughs> go for a walk. And this is why many translations we have today say, live your life in a worthy way. But what I think we lose when we do that is we miss the sense of, like, that it's everywhere. It's, it's, if we say live your life, we can sort of move it into a, a conceptual realm, a realm that doesn't make as much sense to us or is practical. But if you ask yourself, how am I walking my faith today? How am I walking out this? It changes a little. It becomes more practical and necessary. And so Paul's calling, therefore, is to walk in the manner worthy of which you've been called. Now, one of the things I didn't talk about was one of the things one of the distortions we have in this process that Paul laid out in, two, in chapter 2 was the devil. And, and there's this great idea in Scripture that the devil is father of lies. And so one of the things, if Paul is saying, look, knowing what you know, live a calling worthy of that. Walk a life worthy of that. Knowing what God has done for you, made you saints, raised you up on high, seated you in the right place in the heavens, brought you from death to life. Live that. If you think about this, this, this thing that's often called the devil, uh, Hasatan, Satan in Scripture, in that way, what's his best tool? Getting you to forget that or to doubt it or to disbelieve it. See, that, that when we preached through Genesis, I was thinking the, the language we used was that, the, that most sin is not remembering that you're a creature of God, right? I think I was thinking through this today is that like, is, is, is for Exodus, you know, most sin could be encapsulated not remembering that you are rescued by God. For Leviticus, because that's the furthest we've made it, I was thinking most sin could be encapsulated in forgetting that you've met with God, that God has met you in this place. And so with Ephesians, that's the exact calling he's saying, is that, that you will forget this news. And so in light of that, 
Walk this out. Live this out. Remember who you are is essentially what he's saying, which I think is a classic line from the movie The Lion King. Um, but it's a powerful scene. It's a powerful scene for the reason that it, that it calls him back to living out who he's supposed to be. Uh, in that movie, if you haven't seen it, <laughs> and I don't want to spend any time recapsulating Lion King. But, uh, you know, he's supposed to be a king, and he's run off to a different place, and he's wasting away doing nothing with his life. And one of the things that brings him back between uh, a girl he knew, which is, okay, and a monkey, um, is, uh, is that they call him to remember who he is so that he can go back and face darkness and evil in, in the guise of his uncle. Um, but that's sort of the important thing is to remember who you are. Therefore, in light of all I've told you about who you are now, walk in a manner worthy of God. This is what Paul is calling them to. And this was what will take up the second half of sort of this letter and the second half of our sermons on this letter is, is what are we to do in this? And, and Paul will get specific here. Here's how you should order your households. Here's how you should look at the, the challenges and temptations that come to you. He gets intensely sort of practical in this last half. In the first half, he's painting this grand picture of who we are as called by God. In the second half, he's going to say, what does it mean to walk that out? What does it mean to be that out? And the, and the best part, I think, about the imagination that Paul has here is that it's remember who you are, right? This is who you are as somebody called by Christ. We think sometimes that like, well, I've lost that. I'm no longer that identity, right? And it's like, no, you still are that. You just keep forgetting. You keep not living towards it. You keep not believing that about your life. So Martin Luther had this thing that whenever he was plagued by doubts, um, plagued by, by uh, misunderstanding or anything, he would just write down over and over again, I'm baptized, I'm baptized, I'm baptized. It's sort of a way of remembering that that's his chief identity in the world. He's one who has been dead and has now been brought to life was his way of empowering himself to move forward. I don't think it's that bad of a way. And so he says to live a life worthy of this calling we have received. And then he goes into be completely humble and gentle. Not what you would expect after this. Be completely humble and gentle. Now in our world, this is, this is the challenge. Um, what was it in the King James? Uh, lowliness and meekness? Yeah, slowliness and meekness. That's maybe a little bit of better capture of it for our world because humility is kind of a virtue, right? When somebody talks about, you know, somebody nowadays, they'll be like, be humble. Be, be, he's a humble person. That makes him somewhat better, right? It's a virtue. All the other ancient literature we have from, from the first century, humility other than Christians is something you don't want to be. It's taking on a lowly state. It's being lowliness in some sense captures, at least for us, a better sense of what that learning might mean. Practice lowliness. Most people don't want that from their pastor to sell them that. And most people don't want to hear that message in this world of get to the highest point and stuff like that. And the best part is today you can get to the highest point by being humble. But what Paul's language here is actually practice lowliness. In the ancient world, this would be what they looked for from slaves to some degree. A good slave is one who practices this characteristic, and that's as a master. So a good slave is one who practices this characteristic. And so Paul's first call to them is to take on this estate of lowliness. 
But for Paul's imagination, Paul's logic, it actually has to do with first properly assessing your relationship to God, knowing where you are in relationship to God. And what Paul actually believes is once you take on that lowliness and understanding who you are as one in relationship to God, it actually gives you a whole framework for living out your life in a different way. Because what happens is, is that that's your appropriation to God, then what does it mean to be around other people? Well, that's solved with the word uh, gentleness or meekness, depending on what you want to say uh, for that ge gentle or meekness. And that's, that sort of is that once you know that, then you can approach other people with gentleness and meekness. You approach them in a different way. The next word is patience. Now, Kelly once bought a bracelet. I think she still has it with all the fruits of the Spirit on it. And there's some sort of rule that, like, all Christian art or jewelry must still use the King James translation. So, of course, the fruits of the Spirit are listed in the King James on this bracelet. What was amazing to me about it was that the word long-suffering is on there as one of the fruits of the Spirit. And that's sort of the classic way of translating patience. It's what it is in the King James, it's long-suffering. And I thought about that because patience, again, sort of rings like a virtue or something nice to do. But long-suffering, suffering long with something is not something we, we want to hold next to patience. And yet, if you were to think, what's the definition of patience? Suffering long with something might be the top definition. To suffer with something. To have long suffering for those things. And as Paul is calling churches to be these communities together, he says, have long suffering in you. Have patience within you. That the second call in living this life is one to have patience to have long suffering among us as we bear with one another, as we live with one another. This is the call that Paul has, has sort of laid out after this sort of introduction, is that we're to be humble, gentle, and have long suffering for the purpose of, of building each other in love, to have love be among us. And for Paul in Ephesians, love is this word that keeps coming out as sort of the chief of these virtues or ways of being in the world. It's an active sense of sort of building a community that loves one another, cares for one another, knows for one another, speaks to one another, um, has life within it for one another. Paul's idea of what these first century churches are going to be like is that they will not fight, that they will not have in infighting, they won't have this sense of of being uh, a higher than, they'll know their estate as lowly, and that they'll have long-suffering and they will bear with one another in gentleness for the purpose of love. And the purpose, Paul says, is to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In some sense, Paul's whole four through six is about keeping up this peace and modeling love. That's sort of his call in the world. That he views that as his call at the moment is to remind these communities. And what I like about this, too, this too is not something like, make sure that you earn your status as a community of peace. Rather, make sure that you are living according to what you are, which is these people bounded and brought together in peace. And then he, he sort of moves forward and he ends this section with what, what one writer called the unity creed. And it's these seven things laid out with the word one before them. He says, uh, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all. There's seven listed there, and it is, it's 
you have the Jewish imagination. Again, seven is a very complete term. Sort of have these seven onenesses that will help and guide us in this life. And they're one body, which is, if you, if I'm just going to take a second to sort of outlay each of them. The one body is, is so that we have this one body, which is Christ. That's where he ends this passage. We are one body, so what in a body wars against itself? Keep peace in your body, one body, one spirit, one power at work in your life, one power at work in your church. There's one thing moving throughout this place, one hope of the inheritance we have, one hope of what we are called to in our lives and future, one hope of this future redemption of the bodies and of the world, one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign one, the one who has taken us from death and raised us into life, one faith. This is the the one faith helps with that Jewish-Gentile division. Gentiles just don't have a lower faith. But there is one faith that both Jews, Christians, and regular or Gentile Christians are practicing together. There's not two faiths. And this one faith is the mystery that's being revealed that was laid forth from the foundations of the world. One baptism, one movement from death to life, one act by which we belong to this, one way in which we move into this. And I think this is such a crucial point because how do you join this thing? There's one baptism. There's not 10 steps to becoming a Christian. There's not a continual process. It's not, it's not this way of moving in that like, hey, you've reached higher mysteries, get a better checklist. Um, it's one baptism is your entry point that moves you from death to life. And one God, the Father, Overall, Now, the Father, we talked about last week, he says that God is the Father of all peoples, not just Abraham. So it's one Father who's creator. It's one person. It's one, it's one God, the Father of all, who is for all people. And so Paul's sort of unity crane names the dimensions in which they will sort of move and live in. And so the second part of his lessons day sort of takes up from... Um, Psalm 68, which we read in two parts throughout the sermon. It's a little bit longer. So uh, Emily read the second half of Psalm 68, and Brian read the first half. And the first half ended with the selection that Paul has, or is using. But I just want to note that, that we've talked about my graph here. Graph is such a painful thing to call it. Um, my charting of time here, uh, this, this turning of the ages that we have in Jesus that we have this one that death sort of rules and ends, and one that life is eternity. And what actually is the movement, which is we have us across here, is God's victory over death. And so that psalm we read is this victory psalm, uh, first attributed to David. And this is why Christians have victory in our songs. We, the High King of Heaven we sang today. There were several points in the songs where Christians are still like saying these things that we won this war that this battle has been conquered by Christ and that this is our inheritance and this is our life. But there's not a whole lot in my life that looks like, hey, I know that we've won this thing, that through Christ this thing has been settled, that, that, that through what God has done, victory is assured. Through belonging, through baptism, through death and life brought into resurrection, that, that I live on the timeline where that the, the war has ended, the final shot has been tired, and all that we're awaiting is the final consummation of that victory. Christianity is this, this religion of victory as much as it doesn't look like it. 
And there's one thing to say. It's a religion of victory, and yet what are we characterized by? Gentleness, meekness, patience. So it's not that we're supposed to walk around triumphantly over everyone else, but we often forget that one of the reasons why we can live this life is because the things that want to pull us from it are already gone. They're already abolished in what God has done in raising Jesus from the dead. And so this new timeline that we participate in through participating in Christ is actually this, this victory timeline that God has definitively done this. And so it's no oddity that Paul would go to a victory psalm to express this. It says that he ascended on high, he took many captives, and he gave gifts to his people. This is the middle of Psalm 68, that, that Jesus ascended to this place, that Jesus has been brought up. And, and one of the things that Christianity, we don't talk about a lot today, is the ascension. We talk about the cross, we talk about the resurrection, but equally we should probably talk about the ascension. And when I once was called to preach on Ascension Sunday, I was like, Jesus ascends back into heaven. Uh, didn't do much for me. Uh, and the challenge of preaching is when your first reaction is that doesn't do much for me is to figure out what should it be doing for me because that seems like a weak response if I got up here and said that. And what I did is I ran into all these ways in which the ascension was understood historically is that Christ goes and leaves to us so that he can be more present to us. This is a theme that comes up in the, the Gospel of John is that when Christ is here, he can only be present to us like one person at a time or in groups at a time. But through his ascension, he can be present more to us. That he can be present in our lives more than he's ever been before. That through being raised up to that place, Jesus becomes more real in this place, in this moment of worship. That he's ascended to the right hand has that sense of victory to it, but also that he's ascended to the right hand in, in the early Christian mindset meant that he's available everywhere. That he's over everything and that his power in life sort of goes into everywhere. And so he's ascended up to that highest place. And what it says is he took many captives. There's one translation that said he made captivity captured, which I really liked. That the captivity that we feel Christ captured that you feel captive in your life, that's been taken captive. And it says that he took many captives. And you can think about this as, as the powers that Paul has been talking about that sort of distort our world and our lives. But he took these things captive. And the next thing he does is he gives out these gifts to people. Now, if you're reading the psalm, it says that the, the one who conquered received these gifts, which is technically called the spoils of war. It's a nice way to think of them as receiving the gifts, but hey, you won, of course they're going to give you what they have. But, but what it says is that what Christ did is he turned, and now he gives these gifts out to the church. He gives these gifts out. This is, this is supposed to be representative of a gift, is that he gives gifts out to the people. And not only that, in, in Paul's idea, he gives gifts out to each of us. He gives gifts out to each person in the church to be useful for the upbuilding of the church. And if we only have one person's type of gift, the church becomes lopsided. He gives out these gifts also apportions to each person, it says, which can be read critically as like he gives out more to some people and less to others, or it could be read as fitted to each person. Christ gives out gifts fitted to who you are in proportion to who he's called you to be. He gives you out the gift that you're supposed to bring and model in this place, which brings us to that, that letter which came out this morning is that Part of this movement that we're going to go through as a church for this next year is, is trying to figure out those gifts, how we can practice those gifts together, 
how we can discern those gifts together, how those all the gifts that are in these four walls can be used for the upbuilding of our church here in this community and in this pot, part of the world. But Paul, in his genius, doesn't leave it as Christ is just this one who ascends. Christ is also this one who descends. He says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended? Descended to the lower parts of the earth. Well, classical Christian theology, this phrase would have to do with the descent into hell. That Christ has descended into hell and raided that place too and brought back many gifts that he's brought back captives from that spot. The people were captive to even the worst spot that we could imagine. Christ has too been raiding there and proclaiming it, which is, which is a statement about the power of Christ and who Christ is. But in context, what it more likely means is that Christ descended here to earth, that Christ took a residency here on earth. In Philippians 2, there's this idea that he set aside being like God so that he can take the form of a bondservant or a slave here on earth. That Christ took off his glory and came to earth is probably what it means. But what I like about both the hell, or if you want to say the lowest parts of the earth, is that Christ took up the lowest parts of the earth is where he descended. Which I think is helpful for us to remember, is that as low as we may feel, as beat down as we can be, as near death as it may feel like for us, as near as worthless as, as a boss can make you feel, as near depressed as something that's happened in your life with some medical news, is what, what Paul is saying is that he's descended into that place. That there isn't a spot of the human experience that Jesus hasn't touched in his descent to earth. He's taken up the lowliest places on earth. So no matter how lowly you feel, Paul is saying that Christ has been there with you. But Christ didn't make him accept, an exception from the lowliest spots on earth. This is the miracle of Christianity at times, is, is that they can walk into the brothel, they can walk into the slums of, of India, they can see the caste system at work in, let's say, India, and say that Christ has descended to the lowest point in that. He's descended, in American terms, to the lowest tax bracket. He's descended to the lowest place of birth, to the darkest ghetto, to the darkest slum, to the most foreign you could get from what God has done, so that he can ascend and raise you up. But he's also ascended from that place as well. This is what Paul is proclaiming through this victory song. And so he descends in order to or descends and ascends so that he can fill the whole universe. And so Christ gave us these five gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers. And I want to say just on that shortly, we preached on it this summer, but, but each of those five gifts are gifts that Christ is. Apostle is a sent one. Christ is called the sent one. He's, he's that. Uh, prophet, Jesus takes on the mantle of prophet when he reads from Isaiah and Luke 4. Um, he takes on the role of evangelist as he proclaims sort of the good news throughout the countryside. Um, the pastors and the teacher, that one is shepherd, pastors, shepherds, you could also read that as, is that Christ functions as those as well. And so each of these is to say that to become this body of Christ here in the world, we need all these gifts that he modeled in his life practicing. And yet Jesus doesn't say it's up to you alone to be all five of the gifts I modeled in my life. He says that I've made a body 
that can practice those five things. And so you don't have to be five things at once. You don't have to be the, the perfect one. But your group, your church, is meant to model that for the world. And so he says that they'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and wind by the wind of each teaching, is that um, instead, instead speaking the truth in love, that that's their call. And so first off, that they're not ones who are just tossed about what goes on in the world. They're not just pushed back and forth by any, any movement that comes quick or any wave that comes quick. And, and if you were a sailing culture, if you were fearful of the sea, which this was, they're not smashed against the rocks because of it. And he starts with infants, and then he says to grow up into the maturity of Christ for the last thing. He moves from infants at the start of the section to growing up into the maturity of a, of a full body. He says, don't be as infants, just pushed about by everything that comes. But rather, speak the truth in love, which I think he's calling them to, to truthing in love. To be ones who speak the truth in love. And this is no small call for the church to be ones who speak the truth in love that will grow us into Christ. Because to speak the truth in love means to know what lies on it, right? To, to be able to speak truth, you have to know what lies on it. And that, I think, is a challenge for the church in the modern world. Because to say that, they, that I have some understanding of truth, people might not take offense at that. But to be able to speak truth in a way that says I also know what lies are means something else. So I was just thinking about this last night. There's, a, there's an Apple Watch commercial right now that says, uh, there's a better you in you. Um, it's the one with the guy who runs and it looks like him over and over again. There's a better you in you. What does it mean for the church to say, that, that sounds like a lie. There's not a better you in you. There's a you that's called to meet Jesus and be moved from death to new life. There's a you that's more fully who you are, but that comes through meaning something exterior to yourself. It's not becoming the perfect you as much as I may even think. You know, the better me is what God wants for me, but actually what God wants for me is the better one who's shaped and called forth by his image. What does it mean to be able to speak the truth in love in a world full of so many lies? Not only that instantaneously, like, you can buy the Apple Watch and be the better you and you. It's somewhat the point of the commercial. You can buy something to make you the better you. Let's just, let's just call that out that it's a lie. That the better you that can meet Jesus doesn't require buying anything. Certainly not $499 from one of the wealthiest companies in the world. The you that could be better is, is one that comes for free through the, through the payment that Christ has enacted on your behalf. To be a people of the truth means something like that. And to be able to speak that in love is the important part. There is no speaking the truth not in love, which I think, if you've ever had a Christian come to you and be like, I'm going to give you some hard truth, you should be like, hold on. Reminder to speak the truth in love before you start. Normally people who come like that, that won't cause them to reflect at all. They'll just go into what they wanted to say anyways, which is... But that's the challenge for the life of the church, is to be able to speak the truth in love to one another. And this, this brings us to sort of this final point. This has been over my head for at least a year now. I preached on this at the end of November last year when we touched on Ephesians just briefly. And this is a quote from an interview I listened to a long time ago. This guy, Turner, wrote this book 
uh, about how the church is, the church faces two ways of thinking about the modern world. One is to make you more holy, that, that the idea is for you to become a more holy instrument of God. The other is to reform society, that the church is mainly there to make society more just. And he said, this guy Turner, as he read the book of Ephesians, it became apparent that neither of those are encapsulating of the mission of the church. And it's not that the church is, in, there's not A and B and D or C. That's a real low point right there. <laughs> uh, but there, there's like a third thing. Um, there's some other third thing that the church is called to be. And he says what that third thing is, the church is called to have a common life together that models Christ to the world. It's meant to be that. It's meant to be oriented in such a way that its common life is, is, is proclaiming Christ to the world. And so in this interview, he says, what I try to say to focus on the common life of the church as a form of witnesses to the purposes and nature of God cannot eliminate the notion that I have to live in that way. And that's the question of sanctification. That's becoming more holy. But it doesn't become the overriding concern, which is the rhetorical question, how am I doing? The overriding concern of the Christian life, he's saying, isn't the question, how am I doing? The overriding concern is my community, is, is my community in a healthy situation? Am I contributing what I need to it? Am I listening to what it is telling me? Uh, it has to tell me. I transfer as it were the focus of common life, and it's within that common life I learn a way of life. So that's a complex sentence, but what he's saying is I transfer that notion that it's my job to just be more holy to the common life. And within the common life of the church, we learn a way of life. I worry about these things because this is controversial in a lot of ways. Um, it's to say that what the heart of is at the church is to come together and to learn a common life together. The speaking the truth in love and walking in manner accord with Christ is to model life, our life as a church in such a way so that we grow up to him as the head so that what they see in us is the body of our Lord. What does Jesus look like? Come to my church and see. It's never been sounded like good news to anyone, but that's the goal. That's what the role of Ephesians was, and that's what happened in the first couple centuries of the church, is that the witness of the life of the church is what called people into it. And in that, I take on a second nature. I worry once you begin to say, how am I doing? Am I getting more and more holy? All sorts of things begin to go wrong. But if you say, what are my relationships like? How am I contributing? What's happening? Why am I in this conflict? How do I get out of this conflict? That changes the locations of one's struggles to become Christ-like. What he's saying is, is that within your community, if you're asking the question of, am I here contributing? Is this what's happening? Am I in conflict? How do I get out of this conflict? If the community of the church becomes the place where you're modeling and living those things together, then that changes the location of this this project of holiness, sanctification, of reform for society and other things, so that we take on the character of Christ as a body. Which again is Paul's point in Ephesians, is that these communities seated throughout the ancient world will take on the character of life, Christ in their body and model that outward to the world. So my goal and hope is, is if you read the letter um, that, that we gave out on the way in, is that for our churches to begin to look at what does it mean to model a common way of life together so that we model Christ to the world. And that is hard. Because I have to ask the question, uh, what is this place teaching me? What is this place telling me? Is it naming conflict? 
Is it naming? Am I contributing? All these things become more complex because the interview finishes with this. At least the question the interviewer asks, we should be asking is, how are we doing? Not just how am I doing? And the Turner responds, yeah, that's the first question. How are we doing? Exactly. We aren't, as the North American church, doing too well. So the challenge for us is to find church. Studying Ephesians as we move throughout the year and through our lives is to ask the question of how do we change the tide from how are we doing exactly, not too well as the North American church, to exactly. And here's how we're taking on that common life together to be transformed into who Christ has us be as his church and body here on earth. Let us pray. God, you...